Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. This is our Braveheart teaching series. We are wrapping it up this weekend. We've worked our way all the way through the book of Judges. It's been a crazy, wild ride. And uh, I hate to say it, but the end of the book is a gut punch. It's just a, it's a, it's a terrible ending. And I think it's important for us to cover it and look at it. We're going to deal with a very sensitive topic. We're going to talk about abuse. We're going to talk about spiritual, emotional, relational, sexual, physical abuse. And uh, so this Braveheart teaching series, Courage in a World of Compromise, we're going to talk this morning, the title of this weekend's message is People Without a King. Without a King, you can turn to Judges chapter 19. We're going to go and cover uh, 19 all the way to chapter 21. I'll be reading some of it and summarizing most of it, as you will see. Now, as was stated, this, is a, this has an R rating to it this morning. And um, because we live in a fallen world, would you agree with that? This world's, world's pretty messed up. And uh, maybe you might have a harder time agreeing with the next, but maybe not. Hopefully you're in touch with reality. But because we live in a fallen world and all of us, every one of us, are sinners by nature and by choice. Would you agree with that too? Yeah, okay. And if you don't, hang out with us for a while and you'll begin to see that. Because as we study God's word, it's very evident that we all have sin in our lives. And because of that, that sin, so we have all sinned and we have been sinned against. So we could actually say, based on an understanding of of sin, is that we have all abused and have been abused. That would be another way of saying it. So what's interesting about what the Bible teaches is that the, the ground in front of the cross is level ground. There's no moral higher ground for any of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible's very clear about that. And, um, and, and you'll notice there on your notes, this, was, this is the big theme verse. If you want to know what the book of Judges is all about, we've talked about this throughout, and this is how the book ends. It ends with this verse. In those days there was no king in Israel, And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, there was no moral code. There was no uh, moral compass. There was no sense of direction. There was no purpose and vision. You know, everybody did whatever their their heart wanted them to do. I mean, uh, everybody followed their heart, you know, wanted to satisfy themselves. And so... Uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so let me, let me give you the next couple thoughts. It should be there on your notes. All human problems and pain are symptoms, and the cause is our separation from God. So we all think we're smarter than God and that he's somehow holding out on us, and we can find life on our own apart from him. So we live outside of his boundaries and what he's established for us out of his love and wisdom. And the reason for all the abuse, brokenness, and misery is that we are not reconciled to God. And in fact, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 2, it says among many things, it goes through a whole list of things, abuse is one of those many things that's listed there. Abuse will increase more and more as we head toward the end of time. So it makes sense. So as we uh, distance ourselves from God as a culture, uh, people are going to be more self-focused and self-centered, you know, uh, follow your heart. Do, do whatever you want to do, and, and that means that we're less God-centered, and therefore there's going to be more and more abuse in our lives. 
And so we're going to talk about this topic. It's a tough one. We need a lot of help this morning, so we're going to begin with a word of prayer before we take a look at this text and unpack these notes and uh, see what God has to say to us this morning. Father, we are delighted to be here today. We love you, and we love you because you first loved us. We love your presence, and we have a sense of your presence here this morning through this uh, time of worship. Wow, those songs that reestablish the truths about who we are in you. God, according to Exodus 15, 26, you are Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And because of the sins that we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us, every one of us, to a greater or lesser degree, are broken and need healing. And Father, you loved us so much that you sent your Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, fullness of life through Jesus. You delight in mending shattered souls. So, Father, through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to understand the nature and ramifications of our brokenness by following the biblical path of healing and restoration that allows your grace to touch our heart's deepest wounds for your glory in our joy, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So take a look at this text. Let's start working through it now. Now keep in mind these last, I kept saying four chapters, but there's actually the last five chapters. Remember, we ended with Samson, and then there was five more chapters. And a lot of pastors, a lot of people don't even want to read these last five chapters. They're, they're pretty hard to read. The last five chapters of Judges gives us an up-close and personal view of what life was like in Israel, the kind of, of spiritual condition God had to consistently rescue these people from. So the end of Samson was the end of the cycles. We get an up-close and personal look at what life was, was all about. The story is deeply repulsive, not just to our modern standards, but also to the ancient Israelite standards. And in fact, this story goes down in Israel's history as an episode of great shame. And you can read about that in Hosea 9.9 and 10.9. And uh, so let's, uh, let's work through this text. I'm going to work through it, and, I'm gonna, and then I'm going to try to summarize these last, uh, these last three chapters we're looking at, and then, uh, then we'll unpack these notes. And, and this is how the story goes. So we work through it, chapter 19, verse 1, and in those days when there was no king in Israel, once again reiterating uh, kind of a free-for-all in people's lives, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. Stop there just for a minute because we need to talk a little bit about this. Levites were to be set apart as holy, as moral spiritual leaders. And as we saw in chapter 17 and 18 last weekend, the Levite... Uh, that was uh, kind of highlighted there, part of that, uh, that plot, the Levite was more concerned with self-promoting religious activity. Remember the homemade religion kind of thing? And so this Levite, as we will see, is concerned with self-promoting relationships, and you'll see that he has a concubine. What is a concubine? It is a second-class wife. It is a, a sex object. This was his sex toy, so to speak, we could say. And uh, so the Levite is both the husband, we'll see that in verse 3 of this chapter, and also the master in, chap in this chapter, verse 27. So he's the husband and the master of this woman. Now, I need to say something about, about this. Uh, well, God makes it clear in Genesis 2.24 
that marriage is between one man and one woman. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You guys are familiar with that. That's the standard. And though that is the standard, many believers in subsequent times followed their society and had multiple wives and concubines. You see that pattern throughout uh, the Bible. And the practice of polygamy always brought heartache and pain without exception. And it was outside of what God had ordained for marriage. Because a lot of people will say, well, hey, well, they, had, they practiced polygamy. And what you'll see is that it's not prescriptive, it's just descriptive. When the Bible talks about it, it's just describing what was going down. Believe me, you study the stories, it's horrendous what happens as a result of their polygamy. So polygamy is not endorsed in Scripture whatsoever. It was established back in chapter 2, uh, verses 24 and 25 of Genesis. One man, one woman, for life. That's the way it's supposed to be out of God's love and wisdom for us. Now, verse 2, and his concubine was unfaithful. Literally, she went out and committed adultery on him. And if you've got ESV, you've got a footnote there too. And basically, it was because she was angry at him. So his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four Months And so the concubine commits adultery, leaves him, and returns to her father's house in Bethlehem. And then in verse 3, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her to bring her back. Now, no, everybody look up here. This sweet talk is a facade. He doesn't give a rip about this gal. And by the way, this is one of the characteristics, part of the profile of an abuser, as you will see. They kind of sweet talk you, they pour a lot of love on you, and then they guilt and shame you. Love, it's just, it's just like one-two punch. It's just like sweet talk you, and then they just pile the shame on you and the guilt on you. So it's, it's, a, it's a bit crazy making if you've ever, ever been in a relationship like that. And, uh, and this is where this guy is headed. So don't be confused because as we work through the story, and he had with him, this is uh, the Levite, he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys and she, brought, and she brought him into her father's house. <clears throat> and when the, the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So this guy is just, uh, the father is overjoyed that he's here, which is interesting. <clears throat> and so we see in verse, verse 3, the Levite waits four months before going to persuade her to return. And he evidently wasn't too bothered about having his concubine back, but eventually... He either wanted the sex or the status or both is what's motivating him. <clears throat> and then verses 3 through 8, let me summarize this section here. The, the Levite waits four months, as we said, and when he finally arrives there, the concubine's father gladly welcomes him and seems to almost be overly hospitable, almost desperate to patronize and placate uh, this Levite. Here's the deal. He doesn't give a rip about his daughter. He just said, here, take her, take her off my hands. Uh, you know, she's yours. So he could care less too. And um, now why would he do that? I, that's one reason, because I think he's just trying to get rid of her. But also because the penalties for both adultery and leaving an owner were, were severe. Death and disgrace for the family. So both the father and the husband treat this woman as an object which, which you know that uh, that's what porn does. It's, it objectifies women. They're just some, something to be used, abused, and discarded. 
That's, that's a billion dollar industry in America today. And uh, so you're seeing, you're seeing that even in this text. They didn't give a rip about her. Both father and husband treat this woman as an object. She seems to have no choice in the matter whatsoever. And, and really, this is, this is how Levites lived. And these are supposed to be spiritual leaders, but this is how they're living. This is how fathers thought. This is how women were treated. It's a very dark picture about to get darker. And then let me summarize verses 9 through 21. After about five days, so this father keeps talking this, uh, uh, this Levite, stay with us, stay with us, and they get drunk at night, they're partying, they're having a good time, and finally the Levite, after five days, the Levite and his concubine leave, despite efforts of the father to get him to stay longer. And on their journey, as the day is coming to an end, they reach a Canaanite, non-Israelite town and don't feel safe. There's some irony here. It's really fascinating as you read. The, the writer here is brilliant in laying this out. But there's some irony because they don't feel safe. This is Canaanite territory. This is non-Israelite. And so they go to find an Israelite town, Gibeah in Benjamin. They go to the town square and no one speaks to them or welcomes them, which is unusual because this culture is known for their hospitality. And so no one comes or speaks to them or welcomes them except for an Ephraimite man who says to them, hey, whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. And he welcomes them into his home. Now we'll pick up our reading in verse 22, chapter 19. And as they were making their hearts merry, so they're at this guy's home, they're getting drunk, making their hearts merry. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him, literally have sex with him, sodomize him. That's, that's what it's saying here. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, no. My brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. You hear, you hear what he's doing here? Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. That's pretty heavy. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Now, I want you to notice this guy's attitude. This guy doesn't give a rip about her, besides the fact of just pushing her outside. And her master rose up in the morning. How did this guy even sleep? See, so it seems like he gets a good night of sleep. Just, yep, Whatever. He rose up early in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house, went out to go on his way. Behold, there his concubine, lying at the door of the house with her hands on the thresh threshold. 
And he said to her, notice his attitude, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her up limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. I mean, when I begin to read this about how he, how he sent her out and all that went, went on in her life, I just wept. I just can't help but weep as I read. This, is, this really happened. This is a true story. This is God's holy word speaking to us. God's trying to get us to understand something here. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So pretty, pretty significant stuff. And uh, I mean, it's, it's just almost, it's almost traumatizing. If ever a human being endured a night of utter horror, it was this, it was this concubine. I mean, I started thinking about this. If I was her daddy, I've got a daughter that lives in Tucson. I would want to hunt those guys down and kill them. I started thinking about that. I was just thinking, oh my goodness, what raw emotion would stir up within me for the protection of my daughter? And then I started thinking immediately of, of, our, of our Father in heaven, the emotion and, and the love that he has for us. And of course, someone that's traumatized like this, they're gonna, they're gonna struggle with this whole idea of God. It's like, where was God in all of this? That's why, why abuse is so, so devastating for people. And it takes such a long time to get over it, to work through it. And you see it right here in the story. Now, why, when the Levite seemed so unconcerned about the brutal rape and the subsequent death of his concubine, does he then send her body parts around to Israel? Because he wants vengeance not for the treatment of, of the woman. After all, I mean, he sent her out to them. But for the loss of his property. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a crazy story. See, the Levite's attitude and actions are just as reprehensible as the Gibeonites. His attitude is just as bad as theirs. And, um, and here's what's fascinating about this story is that God's people, in spite of their many, many, many blessings from God, have become just like the pagan nations around them. And the brilliant writing, did you get a hint of what this mirrors? This mirrors an, an event that happened in Genesis 19. You guys remember? What is that? Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's purposeful. It's brilliant writing to say this. Listen, the people of God have become just like the world. See, that's the point. Oh, oh my goodness, what in the world has gone on here? See, there's, there's a trajectory that we're all on, and we can all head to that direction, even claiming the name of God. If we're not careful, if we don't watch our lives. Now, Judges chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, let me, um, let me kind of uh, just very briefly summarize those. First of all, all the Israelites came out as one man 
and assemble. That's verse 1. And then in verse 2, an army of 400,000 men gather. I mean, these people are like, what is this? This is terrible. And, and what's crazy about this is that they won't listen to God. They don't go to God for help. They go to this deeply morally compromised Levite to listen to what he has to say. Now, listen to what he has to say to them. See if you see anything missing from his story. Classic ab- abusive uh, profile here. Verses four and five, this is what it says. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, so he's rallied all of, the, all of Israelites, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin and I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. Now, I don't know if this is up on the screen, but verse 6, it says, So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. I mean... Now, this Levite's account of what happened is remarkably self-serving, well-edited to hide any wrongdoing on his part. And what's also fascinating about this story is that he fails to mention that he callously sacrificed his concubine rather than fighting to protect her. Now listen to me. A real man, a real godly man would have stepped up at that moment even to his death, to protect his, his bride, his wife. You know why? Because Jesus did that for us. He took on our worst nightmare, our adversary. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. I mean, it's just, so when you look at the contrast there, I mean, that's, that's, you got this vivid contrast, and we have a Savior, we have a King, we have a Lord who has pursued us, who loves us, who took on our worst enemy. Now, verse, uh, look at verse 11, and then we'll, we'll summarize the last two chapters, but verse 11, so all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man, and this is what's crazy about it, there's a couple lessons before we look at our notes, but civil war among the Israelites breaks out, and it becomes a bloodbath, I mean, it's just a massacre, they're beating, they're killing their own people, which tells us human solutions can't fix spiritual problems. Human solutions can't fix the intractable problem of evil. No military campaign or state policy can solve the problems which resides in and comes from the human heart. My friend Joe this last week said, he said, we can't educate, we can't legislate or medicate our problems away. What we need more than anything is a revival of faith in God. Only God can do this. Only God can transform people's lives. Now, let me just say just a quick thing. I know we're heading into this whole political election year and all of this stuff, and you know what? Don't build your hope in politics and thinking that somehow this is all gonna turn around. It just may not. In fact, we may be headed for even a worse four or eight years as our country continues to plummet down into the cesspool. And that gives us opportunity as Christians to let the world know that our, our lives are built on solid rock as we sang. 
the, the foundation of who Jesus is. So it doesn't matter what happens around us. Yeah, we're going to stand up for what is right. There's no doubt about it. And we're going to take responsibility and vote and do all the things that we need to. But ultimately, we know who, who calls the shots. We know who has, who has the last word, and our lives are built on him, and we're going to let our light shine before men so that they can see our good deeds and glorify our Father who's in heaven. So we've got to keep that in mind because too often we think, oh, this all gets spun around. It may not. It may not. The direction and the trajectory that we're headed, and, and by the way, here is another point that I, I put in here, a couple more here, is that fear and pride can restrain the heart I mean, their hearts are restrained. Now they're going to go after these guys. Fear and pride can restrain the heart, but only the love of God can transform our heart. And you are either growing or you're eroding. Being stationary spiritually isn't an option. So you need to, you need to be growing because this is, this, these are God's people. They're just like Sodom. That's the point. Now, now we got a whole load of notes here to go through, okay? And that's just the story, but boy, it, it sets a, an amazing backdrop for what we're going to talk about here. One of the best books that I've ever read on this topic, in fact, I reread it this last week just in preparation. It's, it's Stephen R. Tracy's book, Mending the Soul, Understanding and, and Healing Abuse. I would recommend that book. It's a great book, and I'll, I'll probably go through it a few more times. But we're fortunate to have a part, as a part of our church family, Sean and Dagny uh, Mallory. Dagny's on staff with them, and Sean and Dagny both have taken a lot of people through, through this process, and, and it's a great book. And so when you read the book, you're going to see that basically my notes are the outline uh, of, of, of that book. When you look at the preface of the book, so right here, it's just, I, I couldn't come up with anything better than what he had written. And, I, and I, I'll certainly add my own experiences and some of my own perspective to it, but, but here's, here's where we're going. The nature of abuse, the effects of abuse, and, and the healing path. And this is pertinent to all of us, all of us. We need to know this. Now, let's talk about the nature of abuse. Abuse is rampant but redeemable. <clears throat> it's rampant inside and outside of the church, but it's redeemable. God can use it. Let me give you some stats here just to validate that. The leading cause of injury to women in the world is domestic violence in the home. Leading cause of injury to women in the world is domestic violence in the home. That's by someone they know personally and intimately. Every nine seconds in the United States, a woman is assaulted or beaten. Around the world, one in every three women is beaten, coerced into sex, or abused in her lifetime. One in five teenage girls has been in a relationship already with a boyfriend who threatened violence or self-harm if they broke up. In one recent survey, 92% of all women listed reducing domestic abuse and sexual assault as their top concerns. University of New Hampshire did a 32 nation study and found that women now commit one half of all partner violence. Isn't that interesting? So it's not one-sided anymore. They are just as likely as men to commit emotional abuse, but male victims reported it even less than women because women don't tend to report it, and then men even reported it less. America has three times more shelters for animals than for victims of domestic abuse. 
Isn't that interesting? Now, why deal with abuse? Because it's, we studied the Bible, and this is where we find ourselves as we work our way through the Bible. This is one of the things that we don't do here, as you will see, and, and uh, probably it adds to the intensity of it, is that we don't, I don't preach my pet topics or doctrines. We go through the scriptures, and we let God speak to us wherever that might be, and we're not going to go around a particular topic or whatever. We're going to look at it. We're going to deal with it because this is God's holy word, and he loves us. And we encounter him through his word and through the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. But we, we deal with abuse because it's contagious. It gets passed on from generation to generation. Remember what I talked about a few weeks ago, that homing instinct, that we all tend to go back to that which is most familiar to us, even if it's dysfunctional? So there's something that happens in our lives, in our home as we're growing up, that we're shaped in a certain way, and we'll tend to repeat those patterns. Listen to these stats. Women who have been abused during childhood are significantly more likely to be re-victimized in adulthood. Adult female prostitutes are three to four times more likely than non-prostitutes to have been physically or sexually abused in childhood. See, when we have these attitudes about prostitutes out there that are really negative, little do you know that many of them are trapped and they desperately want to get out but can't. I mean, there's, there's something about where they were raised and what was going on in their life. 70 to 80% of sex addicts are survivors of physical and sexual abuse. 50 to 70% of psychiatric inpatients and 70% of all psychiatric emergency room patients report a history of childhood physical or sexual abuse. The majority of men who beat their wives and our children experience childhood physical abuse. So now, let me kind of wrap this up before we move on. This side of heaven, so I mean, you can see, certainly with the stats, this is just a short list, abuse is rampant. But listen to me, it's also redeemable. This side of heaven, there are no adequate answers to why God continues to allow evil and suffering. But we do know this, that God delights in taking evil and suffering and creating great good out of them. I gave you a couple verses there for that. We have an amazing God who came to rescue us and to make a difference in our lives and transform our life. Romans 8, 28, it says, for this we know. This is, you need to know this, by the way. How many are familiar with Romans 8, 28? It's a fabulous verse. For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I love 50, 20 of Genesis. Remember Joseph? He looked his perpetrators in the eyes, his abusers, and he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What an amazing perspective that is. That's crazy. Only, only through the power and the presence of God can that happen. And so it's pretty amazing. Now, let's take a look at abuse is, is a perversion of the image of God. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we were created for a relationship with God. If you ever wonder why you're on this planet, don't wonder any longer. You were created to know God. You are created to have a relationship with God. You were created in the image of God. You were created by God, for God, to know God, to experience God, to live for God's glory. So you were created to have this relationship with God and also to visibly show God's attributes. They're called the communicable attributes of God, love, joy, peace, all of who God is. And so as we get to know him, that begins to be a part of our lives. And also out of that, we were to be God's representatives to care for creation. 
And so it goes back to the, the early statements that I said that all the mess that we have in this world today is because we are alienated from God. We're out of relationship with God. And Jesus came to reconcile us back to God through his death. Now, let me give you, we're going to walk through these pretty quickly. You need to understand what these are. But uh, the first one is sexual abuse. It's a perversion of one flesh, Genesis 2.24. This is any sexual relationship outside of God's boundaries. And I put there talking, touching. My wife added to this. I didn't put it on. It's not on your notes, but you can put visual. That would be porn or exposing or even sexting that our kids do. They take pictures of themselves and pass it on to one another. That's sexual abuse. Or within a marriage relationship, any sexual relationship between a husband or wife that is forced or hurtful physically or emotionally. It would be sexual abuse. And then physical abuse is a perversion of let them rule. This is Genesis 1, 26. Child abuse under this heading is, is legally defined as any non-accidental injury to a minor by an adult or caregiver. Adult abuse it is the use or threat of physical violence to control someone. And then there's neglect abuse, which is a perversion of cultivate the ground, Genesis 1.26. And uh, instead of a failure of actions, which would, is physical abuse, um, it is a failure to act. This is the failure of a parent or guardian to provide a minor with adequate food, clothing, medical care, protection, supervision, and emotional support. And then there's spiritual abuse. I'm probably uh, more of an expert on this because I was in a church that uh, they put that on me and my family. And it's a perversion of image, Genesis 1.26. We are to reflect the image of God and, and as leaders to represent him. And this would be kind of, this is a short list of what that is. We're gonna actually deal with this uh, after the first of the the year, uh, later on in the year, maybe within the first few months, we're going to do a whole relationship series and probably just deal with what toxic faith is and spiritual abuse and all that so that we understand that more clearly. But this is blind loyalty to leadership. Don't ask questions, just follow. Uh, Christians don't suffer unless there is sin or unbelief in their life, which is not true. Never express your feelings unless they are positive. God will accept and bless you if you will obey. That's called legalism. That's heresy. At all costs, keep up the image of the organization or family. That's very common. And then, and then verbal abuse is a perversion of be fruitful, Genesis 1.28. This is aggravation, picking on you, so someone picks on you. Now, I understand that there's, a, there's sometimes people that love one another, they'll kind of pick on each other. But at some point, you've got to be careful because that can actually step over the line. Why are you picking on them? Do you actually love them or are you just... It becomes agitation. It becomes a form of abuse. Intimidation, making threats. Denigration, putting you down. Humiliation, shaming you. Manipulation, bullying you. And I gave you all the verses. These are all from uh, David. I mean, he, he experienced all of these. Domination, controlling you. Defamation, slandering you. Condemnation, the use of profanity towards you. Now, I'm gonna, I've got one other list I want to work through, but I just want to say, first of all, that I have experienced each and every one of those forms of abuse. And I've also been an abuser in all of those areas also. 
And if you looked at it close enough, you'd probably find yourself also there. Now, let me read to you just to make sure that we're covered the basis because this even goes into a little more of the nuances of what this abuse looks like. This is a chart that we've used here at Desert Breeze when we would kind of help people walk through the issues. And it's called the wheel of power and control. It gives this wheel. But let me walk through some categories. Using intimidation. That's one form of abuse. Making someone afraid by using looks, actions, gestures, smashing things, destroying someone's property, abusing pets, displaying weapons, or using emotional abuse. Here's some of what's in that category. Putting them down, making them feel bad about themselves, calling them names, making, uh, making them think they're crazy, playing mind games, humiliating them, making them feel guilty. Using isolation, that would be controlling what they do, who they see and talk to, what they read, where they go, limiting their outside uh, involvement, using jealousy to justify actions. And then there's minimizing, denying, and blaming, making light of the abuse and not taking their concerns about it seriously, saying the abuse didn't happen, shifting responsibility for abusive behavior, saying they, they caused it, Using children, making them feel, this is using children category, using, uh, making them feel guilty about the children, using the children to relay messages, using visitation to harass them, uh, threatening to take children away. Using gender privileges is treating them like a servant, making all the big decisions, acting like the king or the queen of the castle, being the one to define uh, men's and women's roles. Using economic abuse preventing them from getting or keeping a job, making them ask for money, giving them an allowance, taking their money, not letting them know about or have access to family income, using coercion and threats, making and or carrying out threats to hurt them, threatening to leave them, to commit suicide, to report them, making them drop charges, making them do illegal things. Whoa. There's quite the list there. That's all part of this. Now, let me give you the profile of abusers because this guy, this Levite, fits this profile. Abusers, pervasive denial of responsibility. Remember, the Levite fails to take responsibility for his part in his concubine's death. Chapter 20 of Judges, verses 4 and 5. Also, bold deceitfulness. The Levite fails to mention that he callously sacrificed his concubine rather than fighting to protect her. And then there's harsh judgmentalism. Chapter 20, verse 6. Remember what the Levite said? They committed this abomination. See, when abusers do that, this helps them to maintain the high moral ground and deflect attention from themselves onto others. They cop this holier-than-thou attitude. And then calculated intimidation. Chapter 19, verses 2 through 3. The Levite is waiting four months and then talking kindly to her. And this is what I found, that controllers and manipulators will usually use, as I said, this love. They, they sweet talk you, and they bring you up close, and then they pour the guilt and the shame on top of you. And it's like crazy making. You don't know whether you're coming or going. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, oh, my goodness. It's just crazy. Now, now just a couple of thoughts here. Everybody look up here just for a minute. If you right now, if you right now are being physically or sexually abused, get out of that relationship now. Get out of it. And uh, you might be saying, well, wait, 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 I'm, I don't believe in divorce. Well, I'm not saying divorce. I'm saying separation. Separation for the purpose of reconciliation because sometimes that's the only thing that will, will get that person's attention. 
And if you have a friend that is being abused like that, you need to help them to have the courage to get out and to report it. It's the law. We do not mess around with any of that stuff here. From day one when we started Desert Breeze, we said, hey, we're not messing around with any of this stuff whatsoever. We're gonna deal with it head on. And it's against the law. If you know that there's kids that are being abused, that needs to be reported. It's against the law. And so, that's important. And also, don't you dare, if you're in an abusive situation, don't you dare go back and try to confront the abuser on your own. You need a team. You need a support team to go with you. You do it as a group. And... uh, because it is not wise or safe to do that. You need the support. Now let's talk about the effects of abuse. Now this is what was really, really helpful for me as I began to work through this. And you'll probably see yourself, because we've all been abused to a greater or lesser degree and so we suffer from this if we haven't dealt with this. One of the things that I found interesting, and I teach the game of life and I love teaching it, what I found interesting is when we went through the part where it talks about our gifts and our giftings, We encourage the people in this class to go back to their past a little bit to see what God's saying and doing and and even to to let God recycle their their hurts to use those to benefit others. And I found it really quite interesting that there was a lot of people in that class that really struggled doing that. And it was was just showing me that they haven't dealt with their past stuff because they were still almost reliving that stuff in the past. And this is what I found. is that you know that healing's beginning to take place when you no longer relive it, but you can recall it and you can celebrate it. Sounds crazy, but you can celebrate it and yourself as a trophy of God's amazing grace and you realize that God is recycling the pain so that you can begin to help others. See, and that's, that's when you know it's beginning to really take place and God is taking hold of your life. Now, here's the effects of abuse. Shame, oh my goodness, it's big time. Shame is what drives a lot of our our addictions. We just have the shame. Notice this is unfounded disgust towards self as opposed to founded disgust towards self. This is unfounded. Founded is what you see Adam and Eve experiencing in the garden. That's founded kind of, they're hiding. They violated God's, God's boundaries. They're shame. They're naked. And so he comes into the garden lovingly and says, where are you? He's not coming as an arresting police officer like, I'm gonna come and get you. No, no, I'm wanting you to come back to me. The heart of the Father, where are you? He knew where they were. I mean, he's omniscient. He knows, you know, an omniscient person doesn't ask, where are you, because he needs to know where you are. It was for their sake. It was for their sake so that they could say, hey, we're over here. And he began to ask them questions to kind of get to the root of their issues. And so so the founded founded guilt and shame is meant to help us to fall into the arms of our Savior. So when we know that we have violated God's command, we know it, we fall back into his arms. But then when we look at it, we say, well, I haven't really violated any commands here. I haven't really done anything, and yet I just feel really bad about myself. This is that unfounded uh, disgust towards self. In fact, let me read to you from the book, and this is if you've ever experienced any of these. Uh, this is from uh, the Mending the Soul book, and this is really fascinating. Uh, this was helpful for me. Symptoms of shame. Chronic struggle with low self-esteem, low-grade depression, insecurity and jealousy, the need to compare and compete, 
Inability to accept criticism, the need to blame others, feel they don't belong, self-focused. I mean, you just become really preoccupied with self. Externally focused, I can't, I can't deal with the inside, so I'm going to really make the outside really, really, really look good. Prone to become addicted, sabotage intimacy, hypercritical, unaware or dishonest with feelings, shallow because you're not in touch with your feelings. You just kind of skim the surface. It's all about pretense. Tired, living a shame-filled life is tremendously draining. Great energy is expended to keep up a facade so that one's real self is never exposed. So that is, that's unbelievable. So, so toxic shame tells us that we are defective, irredeemable, unlovable, and all we can do is hide and hope that no one finds out. Well, everybody, once again, look up here. I, I, need to, I need to get this across to you. This is what you need to know. If you were, were abused as a child or as a teen or as an adult, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. But I, I provoke, it's not your fault. You're not responsible for the sinful behavior of another person, regardless of what you've done. It's not your fault. And see, that's what shame, that's what abuse does. It puts so much shame on you. They make you responsible for what they did to you. Isn't that crazy? And we have a wonderful Savior that comes in and loves us and heals us and takes care of us. Here's the... Next thing that happens, if we don't deal with that shame, it, it creates this powerlessness and deadness. Powerlessness is feeling helpless and hopeless to stop the abuse and or to get over the pain of the past hurt. You just, and, and, and I've seen this in, in a lot of severe abusive situations. They're, they're just powerless. They have, there's a hopelessness. And it also creates these uncontrollable anxiety attacks. I've talked to a lot of people that have anxiety attacks and found out that it was rooted deep within themselves from past hurt and, and abuse. And of course, if they hadn't dealt with it, then it piles on the abuse. And if you haven't really learned how to walk through the hurts and hits that you take in life, you're just going to pile that. You're going to stockpile it, and it's going to come out in the way of uncontrollable anxiety attacks, flashbacks, nightmares, irritability, sleeplessness, PTSD. And then this deadness... The deadness that begins to take place is that it only makes sense when you're in an abusive situation, you just begin to shut down. You shut down all feelings so that instead of feeling pain, you just simply feel nothing. It's, it's called numbing. You just numb yourself. It's kind of a survival technique. And if it proves insufficient, then you begin to numb yourself chemically. And um, we have a savior. We have a savior who can rescue us from feeling powerless and this deadness in our life. If you're feeling shame and feeling powerless or even dead, just kind of numb, uh, you need to know this. God cares about you. He cares about you. Even in your numbness, even like, ah, I don't know about that, and yeah, whatever. And that's, that's to be expected to have that kind of an attitude. Oh, yeah, right, God, our solid rock. I, I've seen that attitude in people that are just really getting over their past wounds. That's just how they feel. And, and you need to know that God cares about you. This church cares about you. And I care about you. And, you, and there is hope. There's hope for you. I mean, that's, that's why I love doing what I do as a pastor. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've seen 
person after person, family after family, rescued by God's redeeming power. I mean, that's why we do what we do week in and week out. I mean, as a firefighter, man, this drove me, drove me that much more to the cross and drove me that much more to the, to the redemption. And the only solution to this world's mess is Jesus. Now, the next thing is isolation, shattered intimacy with God. Shattered intimacy with God. Now, there's a couple different things that can happen. And it's been noted, there's, there's some uh, very notable atheists, and they did some research in their, in their history and found out that there were some of these uh, very notable atheists who came from homes where fathers were abusive or absent. And so there's a tendency in this abuse to, uh, to reject God, to reject the existence of God, or to withdraw, can't trust God, or there's a cowering feeling that he will never love or accept me. I mean, if you're not regularly having a sense of his presence and love on your heart, what's that about? There's something blocking that deep in your heart. He loves you. He wants you to experience that in your life. But see, that, that abuse will create that, that isolation, shattered intimacy with God, but also with others. It creates this mistrust, no intimacy with our, with our most important relationships, no emotional connection. I mean, you can't have empathy for people. You don't have compassion. You don't even really care about your own life. Or there's no risk-taking in relationships. You know what's crazy about this is that, and I hear people this, well, I'll never go on a women's retreat or I'll never go you know, on a men's retreat or anything like that. And then I start wondering, well, why? Why won't you go on a women's retreat? Well, I just don't, want to, I, I, I just don't feel comfortable getting that close to other women and, or I don't feel that close of, or I'm, not, I'm never going to go to a small group. Listen to me. The Bible says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's telling us that you were created for a relationship and this is where you thrive. You thrive in relationship with God and with others. And if, if you're not connecting with others regularly in small groups and going on retreats and hanging out with others in this church, there's something broken inside of you. That's, that's a warning sign because we should want to get close with others. There should be this safety as we draw close to one another. But see, that, that creates quite a mess in our lives. Here's the healing path. I've been kind of talking about the healing path throughout. <laughs> Can't help but talk about it. Because God's grace is, is amazingly sufficient. Here we go. We're almost there. So, and what you're going to want to do, this is a lifelong process. You're not going to go through this. And I'm, gonna, I'm laying a lot of stuff on you. I understand. Uh, this is heavy duty. This is the dump truck load, okay? And I do that probably every weekend. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I give it because you're meant to go home and walk through it and pray about it. And I want you to pray through these things. But I'm just going to give you some thoughts. These are, there's a lot of steps in all of this. But you've got to prayerfully walk through this. You've got to pray. And, and you need to work with a friend. You won't be healed on your own. You won't be healed on your own. There's no way. More than anything else, God uses people to heal people. Wait a minute, Pastor Ray. People hurt me. Yeah, I know that. I understand that. But don't, don't become hard in your relationships. Become wise and pick people that will help you to get to know God and to become healthy and to be the person that God's called you to be. And so that's part of that. So the healing path is face the brokenness. Don't keep it a secret. We are only as sick as our secrets. There's no healing in hiding. Ten nation study, depending on the nation, uh, 
really depending on the nation that you're from, 55 to 95% of those abused by partners never told anyone. And so you gotta, you gotta talk about it. Don't keep it a secret. Call it what it is. I love Joseph in 5020 Genesis. I mean, he calls it like it is. You guys hurt me. You guys devastated my life. He pointed them out. He said, he was, he was right on. Grieve, loss, and dare to hope. You gotta grieve it. Let God reinterpret your trauma. Now let me give you some of my favorite verses that go along with all of this. Psalm 34, six, it says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What crushes our spirit? Abuse. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Yes, praise God. He saves our lives. He rescues us. And then Psalm 147.3, let me give you kind of my paraphrase of it. The one who names and numbers the stars can heal your broken heart and bind up your wounds. That's what it says. That's what it says. There, I, gotta, I gotta share one more. It, and I didn't put this on your notes, but it's, it's Psalm 56, eight and nine. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. Anybody ever have a sleepless night? You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This I know, that God is for me. That's amazing, amazing stuff. Rebuild intimacy with God. Wrestle with God. How many remember last weekend I said that God will contradict you and upset you? That is not abuse. It's accountability. He loves you. You gotta know the difference between the two. And listen to, listen to David, Psalm 13, one through two. See if you can hear his heart cry. This is a wrestling with God. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Do you hear the heart cry? That's, I mean, that's rich. That's good. Redefine the fatherhood of God. Did you notice in the Lord's Prayer, he makes a distinction. He says, our Father who art in heaven. Why? He's not earthly. He's heavenly. He's perfect. He's perfect. Listen, your Father in heaven will not neglect you. He will not abuse you. You have to have that redefined. And one of the ways you redefine it is get to know the God of Scripture. Psalm 9, 9 through 10, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name will trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. So your struggle with trusting him is you don't know him. Spend more time with him. The more you get to know him, the more you'll trust him. And then embrace the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that it's the power of God. God loved us so much. He loves us so much and hates suffering that he was willing to come down and get involved in it and rescue us. Our Savior Jesus understands enough to sympathize. How's that? The cross. And strong enough to save. How's that? Resurrection. What's the measure of his love for us? The cross. What's the measure of his power working in our behalf? Resurrection. That's why we keep going back to the cross. Now, here's the hardest. It's the last because it's the hardest, the most difficult. Forgiveness. Let go of hatred and revenge. Hebrews 12, 15. Don't miss, really it says, don't miss the grace of God and let a bitter root grow up and cause trouble and defile many. 
Really, what you have to begin to ask, what has this person really robbed me of when I have so much in Christ? And then let God settle the score. Don't become like the evil that has been done to you. Overcome evil with good. And then begin to reflect on the abuser's humanness. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. As God's chosen one, holy and beloved, put on compassion. Here's the deal that you need to understand. Hurt people hurt people. And when you begin to understand that more clearly, you're not justifying what they've done to you or minimizing it, but you're trying to understand. And in that, you can begin to extend grace as God has given to you. Forgiveness is granted before it is felt. It is a promise to stop nursing, cursing, and rehearsing hurt to your abuser, to others, to yourself. You can't stop thoughts from occurring but you don't have to entertain them. And so you begin to start dealing with that. And then maintain healthy boundaries. Trust must be earned. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. They need to regain that trust that has been violated. Now, let me share with you some opportunities. We have life groups here. That in itself will bring unbelievable healing in your life. So we got life groups. We have Celebrate Recovery every Saturday night. We have Healing from the Inside Out and Boundaries classes that... Uh, that are gonna be offered here real, real soon. For the women, for men, we have men's 33 classes. We have a list of counselors we recommend. You can also go to the website of Mending the Soul, and there's a list of groups that are meeting in the area, and also counselors. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. And as we pray, the band is gonna come up on the stage, and we're gonna end by singing the theme song of this series. You make me brave. Brave heart, courage in a world of compromise. The lyrics of that song are just really fascinating. Just I want you to, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, he calls us out beyond the shore into the waves. No, no fear can hinder now the love that made a way. No fear can hinder now the promises you've made. See, it takes courage to admit our brokenness and get help. There is healing for both the abused and the abusers. So Father God, thank you for your perfect love that chases away the fears and your powerful promises that give us courage to face our brokenness and find healing in you. Thank you, Father, that there is, there is someone who understands abuse more than anybody else, and that is your Son, our Savior, Jesus. No one has been abused more than Jesus. He knows our pain and suffering. Thank you, Jesus, Thank you, Jesus, for taking the sin of the entire world upon yourself and dying for us so that we can be healed. And as it says in Isaiah 53, 5, you were wounded for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. Upon you was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with your stripes, we are healed. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Stand with us.